All right, first I would like to welcome you all to this LSE Sustainability in Practice event. Um, and to get the evening started, we'd like to get you kind of to do a little bit of audience participation. You'll all have been given a CD when you came in. Um, and this is also, if you think about the CD, it's actually a really good way to visualize and a window into looking at kind of resource use and disposability of products. So if you think about a CD, typically what we do nowadays, if you save something onto the CD, it's done, it's used up, and you tend to throw it away. Well, that's actually quite a difficult thing in terms of how much resources you're using in creating the CD, and also the problems that that creates in putting it into the landfill. So what we want to do is actually utilize the CD this evening as a little voting device. So you'll note on your CDs, if you're very clever, one side is red, and one side is not red, it's silver and shiny. So the red side equals no, and the um, silver shiny side <laughs> equals yes. And what we'd like you to do is, when we ask you a question, hold up whichever side um, is the accurate response. You need to hold the, if you're wanting to vote no, the red side towards me. Otherwise, you're not voting the way you think you are. But being from the US, I can tell you sometimes elections don't happen in the way you think. Um, so the first question we would like to ask you, um, and click down, thank you very much. And will it come up? Excellent. Did you arrive here by public transport this evening? And if everyone could vote? Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. And then the second question is, do you consider carbon emissions when you buy food? Cool. All right. I'm glad you're not asking me these. All right. Um, now, I would like to start off um, just to say it's very much my honor and my privilege to introduce you to you this evening Professor Ann Power of the LSE, who's going to be speaking about um, sustainable housing and how we can save about 80% of our energy use in existing homes. And this is both a really extremely important and a very timely presentation. For those of you who don't know Anne, she's been a true leader in the fields of social exclusion, housing policy, international, urban, and inner city problems, European social housing, and unpopular and difficult public housing estates. Um, She's currently working on a book um, on the theme of parenting and public policy, and she's comparing family lives of low-income um, neighborhoods in both the north and the south of the UK. She recently led a team undertaking housing strategy for the Thames Gateway, and she's also reviewing the government communities plan um, from a sustainable development perspective. So she really is kind of a mover and shaker in policy terms. Uh, in October of 2009, she was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award by Regeneration and Renewal Magazine, a prize that was also won by the former Deputy Prime Minister, John Prescott. Um, this award is given to individuals who've had really an outstanding, outstanding impact to communities at, or a single community over the lifetime of their work and over the lifetime of their research. And I have to say, to be very honest, it was a very much deserved accolade in Anne's case. Um, her lecture this evening is going to address how we can really drastically reduce our energy consumption and subsequent carbon emissions by considering existing buildings. And as someone who lives in a very, very typical English house, which is drafty and cold, and I sit at night with a blanket over my head trying to watch telly as I freeze slowly to death, I'm actually going to be very interested in what Anne has to say. So without further ado, Anne Power. Thank you. 
Nancy talked about drafty houses. She was talking about our house before we did our energy efficiency. Um, it was so drafty that it really was very, very easy to take our energy down by 70%. And we're still a very long way from making it to how it should be. So I think we'll be the living proof of what's possible in an impossible world. Um, well, having listened to all of that, what I'm really about is practical things happening. And all of my work, actually, is about practical things happening. It's what drives me. It's what inspires me. Uh, it's what makes me think um, that what people do to make things better really matters. And for myself, I tumbled across this subject of existing homes because the area that I lived in was made a demolition area and I watched that community that I was part of being torn apart. I watched the huge waste of materials. I watched the terrible time lags, the vast expense, and really the destruction of lives, particularly young people's lives while it happened. Um, that led me on to the things that Nancy has referred to. Um, and eventually, I became a member of the government's urban, urban task force. Um, where I was really driven to see that we just couldn't go on as we were, that we had to completely change the way we thought about cities and communities if we were going to have any sort of prospect in this country of making things work into the future. As a result of that, which Richard Rogers chaired, I was asked to be on the Sustainable Development Commission. I had never classed myself as an environmentalist, although I suppose you could say I was a kind of instinctive environmentalist. Um, so when I was nominated for it, I asked why, why me? And they said, well, you're a woman, you're, <laughs> and they were short of women, um, you're an academic, and they were short of academics, um, and you're social, they were short of social. So <laughs> it wasn't my environmental credentials. However, nine years on the Sustainable Development Commission was, I have to say, a, a, an amazing eye-opener to the huge scale of the challenge. Um, along the way, I threw in everything I knew about council estates, about low-income communities, about demolition versus refurbishment, about European and American communities. So here it goes. This is what you have to do, not learn, okay? Right, so why is it that existing homes and communities are so important? Well, if you think about how much we add every year, um, then 99% of everything we live in is standing now. It's what's built already. So what we decide to build isn't irrelevant, but it's not very relevant. It's less, by a long way less, than 1%. At the same time, of those homes that are standing now, which is 25 million in this country, 85% at least will still be standing in 19, uh, 2050, which is our kind of target date for cutting emissions by at least 80%. The way it's going is going to be, have to be nearer to 100%. Um, demolition is intrinsically unpopular with communities, even for very unloved places. Um, it's very unusual for it to have community support. And also, funnily enough, new estates, even for people who want homes, are very unpopular. So all the British social attitude surveys and other public surveys show really massive opposition. It's very, very difficult for governments to get agreement to large-scale new developments anymore. They're also very difficult to pay for. And we do have 250 years of urban industrial growth, which has left us with a massive 
infrastructure, not just of homes, but of roads, of railways, of canals, of um, canalised rivers, of water systems, power systems, um, stuff that's very hard to dismantle. So although we've only built on about 13% of our land, about 75% of our land is under development impact of one kind or another. That leaves us with very little space and room for manoeuvre. And we are, according to the Times World Atlas and the government's uh, chief scientific advisor in DEC, the sixth most densely populated country in the world. So we are in trouble. And if we don't deal with existing homes and communities, then we're completely stuck. Um, how damaging are our homes? I mean, a lot of people don't realise quite how bad homes are, but they do account for nearly a third of um, all CO2 emissions. Uh, buildings account for 50, so if you add all the other buildings, it goes up to half. If you add cars, which link most strongly to homes, um, then it goes up to 75%. So it is huge in terms of where we have to save energy. Uh, we've got <laughs> lots of homes. So we've got six million detached homes and bungalows, and they're a nightmare to um, make energy efficient. We've got six million semi-detached, which were built way, way, way before any um, energy efficiency standards were introduced. Um, that means uh, in, a, in total, we've got 18 million pre-energy efficiency regulations homes, if we take all the flats and all the other things that have been added. And the average SAP rating, which is an energy efficiency rating, in this country is 51, whereas the target minimum should be 81. And if we want to reach um, the ideal um, standard of efficiency we're aiming for for new homes, it should be 100. So we're halfway to where we need to be. We also, although we're so crowded, build at remarkably low density, too low to actually sustain bus routes. In fact, most of our existing homes are at too low density to sustain bus routes. So the entirety of the London suburbs find it very difficult to maintain frequent um, bus routes. And when you go to other cities, it's even more serious. So just to give you a little picture, very typical detached houses with a kind of pretense of being detached because we don't really want to give away too much, um, but terribly energy inefficient as a result. Typical semi-detached, particularly that you'll be very familiar with, um, six million of them. And this is what happens, so we lose 25% of our roofs. And although most people have got some kind of, well not most people, but probably about three quarters of people have got some kind of loft insulation, it's very, very inadequate. It's often very old, and it's far, far, far below the minimum building standards of yesteryear, let alone um, the proposed energy standards. Appallingly, because of the way we've built with semi-detached and detached houses, we lose over a third of our energy through our walls um, and don't quite know how to solve that in many cases. And then through the floors, which nobody tries to insulate, another 15, through doors, which um, we're not very good at either, another 15, and then the windows 10. So it's not great. So the task is massive. We've got about 12,000 neighbourhoods and communities over the country, with 3,000 of them seriously deprived. We've got this target of cutting energy by 80% by 2050. And uh, the expert view is that if we're going to come near to the 80% energy cut by 2050, we really need to get the biggest contribution we can from homes, which has to exceed the 80%, not undercut it. And we've committed to a 20% energy cut by 2020. 
But one of our problems is that we've got 16 million individual owner occupiers who are very hard to organize or coordinate, in fact impossible, because they are by definition individual owners with a lot of rights. We've also got 5 million pre-World War I terraces, which are by miles the leakiest. I think they've got a sap rating average of about 30 to 35. Um, and we've got 2 million plus private landlords who aren't regulated or controlled um, at the moment in any way at all. Um, there's a typical loved terrace or hated, depending on who you are. The government sometimes doesn't like them. Um, so what are the incentives? Well, we've got very high energy bills in this country, on average about £100 a month, so it's a lot of money going out of people's pockets. We've got cold, drafty, leaky, expensive homes, which are hard to eat. We've got a big fuel poverty problem. We waste lots of pounds, about 1200 a year, unnecessarily. Ironically, the biggest incentive is that doing energy efficiency has a net negative cost. In other words, if you do any of the things I recommend, although you have to pay for them, you actually get your money back. And that's the really crucial incentive. How you persuade people to spend the money in the first place um, in order to get that net saving is tricky. And there are known techniques. So while wind turbines are very um, contested and while a lot of the other technologies are challenged, actually making your house more energy efficient is a known technique. And in fact, many very traditional houses with thick um, mud clay walls and thick thatched roofs and small windows, very good model. However, we don't have thick clay walls and thick thatched roofs and small windows. So we have to work with what we've got. But we do have tried and tested approaches. The Germans, who have now got and have had since 2007 a national program, did a very, very clever thing. They didn't call it the tea cosy approach, but they sort of adopted a tea cosy approach, as I'll show you. This is actually a study that's been carried out by a very big Swedish utility company um, with McKinsey's, the international consultancy, and a whole range of governments to try and show what the cost of investing in different technologies is. So, for example, you can see up there the cost of nuclear. Um, what's really, really important is that you can see down here residential energy saving, insulation retrofit, residential electronics, residential appli appliances, retrofit, residential. All negative. They're below zero cost. That's the really key message that you need to take from that diagram. So this is what you need to do. You just have to treat your house like a tea cosy and a teapot. When you've got tea in a teapot, which I know people most often don't use now, which is a great loss to tea cosies. Um, <laughs> if you want the tea to last, you put a tea cosy on it. If you want your heat in your house to last, you put a tea cosy on it. Um, so that's the really key message. On the other hand, we can't quite use tea cosies, so we have to be a little bit more clever than that. So we have to look at what the challenges are and then what we must do about them. If you've got a leaky house like Nancy's got, or like we had, you've got high upfront costs. It's not cheap to do. And if you're going to do a really, really, really good job, you could probably far outstrip that. But most estimates would go around the 10,000 to 30,000 pound 
line. I think for £15,000 you can do an awful lot. For £5,000 you can do something. And if your student's in a privately rented fact, for about £20 you can do a little bit that I could give you tips on um, later. Okay, but there isn't clear, reliable advice. The products, builders and techniques are very confusing and we haven't got very clear standards. Um, we have this very confusing system of building regulations that was devised um, as a result of the Great Fire of London, which happened in 1660. So <laughs> we've kind of laboured with a set of rules that have needed a lot of adaptation to modern standards. Um, and actually we've kept quite a lot of the 1660 regulations in place too. Um, there's also a long-term and uncertain payback, and believe it or not, one of the biggest challenges to combating fuel poverty is getting old people to allow somebody to clear their loft so that their loft can be insulated. They don't want their stuff tampered with, they don't want anyone else to move it, they don't want to throw, throw stuff away, and it's messy and very, very dirty, and stuff they'll never look at again but can't quite bear to be parted with. That's just one example of the barriers to energy efficiency. Um, there's also a problem of internal space, although I think this has been grossly exaggerated. And I saw a very persuasive presentation from a Welsh building research establishment person showing that you only need lose 6% of your, of your floor space if you've got to do solid wall insulation. The reason why it's a problem is because if you live in a conservation area or if you have a stone building, or if you have a brick-faced building, there will be massive objections to you covering it up. Um, demolition is unpopular, but believe me, external cladding of brick is even more unpopular. It's a very, very bizarre UK thing. I just don't understand it. But anyway, we've got that problem, so you then have to do it on the inside, which is more difficult. You've also got a big bureaucracy about grants, and we have energy companies. The government decided to privatise energy and create a market, a pseudo-market. Um, and so nobody knows who their energy company should be. And we're constantly bombarded with offers um, from a range of energy companies, all of whom do the same thing and none of whom actually produce our energy. Um, so, you know, when the government proposes that energy companies do some of the work, everybody is deeply suspicious. Unfortunately, because our building regulations are so arcane, most people don't trust their builders either. So those are big challenges. I and mean, we're doing some work at the moment on how you can overcome at least the building side of those challenges. But there are some very hard wins that we absolutely have to do. So we've got about 20 million drafty doors and windows. And we do know that you can make windows and doors not drafty. It's not free, but it's not very expensive, and it makes a huge, huge difference. So when you're on a mountain, if you ever go mountain walking, you'll have heard what the temperature is, and then what the wind chill factor is. And that means the temperature is, let's say, three degrees, and the wind chill factor could be another eight degrees. If you've got drafts in your home, and you've got a nice warm fire and a good radiator, you might be losing a hell of a lot just because you've got drafts. So the kind of houses we've built over a long period of time, basically because we relied on coal, is that we built very drafty homes. So that's a really big problem. We've got 10 million homes with solid walls. 
35% of all heat is just going straight out through the walls. We've got 8 million poorly insulated roofs. We've got 7 million unfilled cavity walls and 2 million completely uninsulated roofs. So it's just one huge task. And the government has calculated the approximate cost of doing this amount of work. It is in many, many, many billions of pounds. Um, here's an example of a do-it-yourself retrofitter who really believed what he said and so he set about doing it himself and um, does look quite dangerous actually when you do it yourself. <laughs> um, we've got a few do-it-yourself retrofitters in the audience, I know I caught their eye. Um, but here's the kind of thing you have to do, you literally have to pad out your walls with this massive chunky stuff um, in order to make sure that you can keep your energy in. So those are the hard wins and the hard targets. What about the easy targets? Well, David Mackay, the government's new chief energy advisor, who is a very brilliant man, written a very brilliant book about it all, has shown that if you turn your thermostat down from 20 degrees to 17, the average temperature now in a British house is 20 degrees. If you turn your temperature down to, seven, to 17, which is what the average temperature was in 1975, one generation ago, you will save one third of your energy. So just by having your house at a modestly okay temperature instead of a hot temperature, um, you'll be okay. If you turn your radiators off 80% of the time, which is what, you know, most people's usage of temperature is at the very most 20% of a 24-hour day. Obviously, it's spread out and different for different days. But we have our radiators on for maybe half, and some people literally all the time. Uh, David Mackay also shows that stuff, the things we buy to fit our houses, to fit ourselves, to do the things we do around our homes, accounts for about a third of total um, carbon emissions. So we could if we don't stop buying stuff, we could certainly massively reduce the stuff we buy and we could do a lot of exchange. We could halve our hot water use just by having um, uh, sprinkler showers on our taps and on our uh, shower heads. Um, if you run your water and your temperature at 30 and your water temperature at 30 instead of 40 degrees for every purpose, actually, you can run dishwashers at that temperature, washing machines at that temperature, washing up bowls at that temperature, baths at that temperature, showers at that temperature you actually make a very, very big difference as well. Um, most people don't seem to realise that blinds let in the cold around the edges, even when they're supposed to be thermal blinds. They really are. I think they should be banned, actually, but I know that won't be popular. No, I take it back. They shouldn't be banned. <laughs> there are other things we should do first. Um, but curtains are much, much better, because curtains can actually cover a window. And if you buy thermal lining from John Lewis for £5.99 a metre and it's a metre and a half wide, for about £12 for a very big window, you can actually hugely hold out cold. Even if you've got double glazed windows, even if you've got secondary glazed windows, even frankly if you've got triple glazed windows, you still get a lot of cold off windows. They're never as warm as the room, so actually doing that. The other thing you can do if you haven't got secondary glazing is put cling film on windows. I don't know if any of you have this experience but it's a very magic um, it's a very magic thing I asked the building research establishment to tell me whether there was any value in cling film because I was being challenged I think it's fantastic um, and he said well of course it's very 
secondary gazing. It just happens to be very cheap. So for years and years and years, it was you know, used by people to keep out the draft. And then it was overtaken by double glazing salesmen, and it basically became rather, you know, downgrade, a bit like Woolworths, and so you couldn't actually get it anymore. And then in this last year, um, it's been so popular that Wick sold out, B&Q sold out, it, it's, so that's a good one. LED lights use about one-twentieth of the energy of normal lights. I think it's about one-seventh of energy-efficient lighting. Um, heat exchanges in your bathroom, instead of having a ventilator in your bathroom or your kitchen, if you have a heat exchange ventilator, in other words, a heat exchanger, you actually get back about 60% of the heat that your bathroom has produced through your shower or through whatever you were doing. So there's a heat exchanger. It's basically a nose. So when you breathe out through your nose in the cold, your nose cleverly gets most of the heat back into your body so it's not wasted. And then when you breathe in, you breathe in all this cold air and it's warmed in your nose. So by the time it hits your lungs, it's warmed up. Well, basically, somebody has invented a nose for your bathroom. Um, they do cost about £200, but Ventaxias cost about £180. So for a small amount of difference, you save most of the heat. Um, this is your cling film, and there's your LED lights. Any of you who are cyclists will know that in the olden days, i.e. about three years ago, your cycle lamps used to run out of battery about every four days. And now, because everybody has LED battery lights, on their cycles, they just, you know, year two, year three, you're still running on your same LED battery. So they're fantastic. So, if it's this important, is the government listening? Well, actually, I think it is. It might not be getting its act together totally, but I think it's listening. Um, it's got, I won't go through all these, in fact, I think I probably won't go through programs that the government is doing. There are lots of programs. I maybe will just highlight a couple of them. It's about to announce an energy ma management strategy. So watch this space. If they dare miss the boat before the election, it will be a massive disappointment to those who've worked very hard on it. But they say they won't miss that boat. So that's one thing that's going to happen with very ambitious targets. They've already introduced two really interesting programmes, the Community Energy Saving Programme, where they're targeting, I think it's 100 areas, with um, maybe 500 houses in each, where they try, and which are very low income, the very lowest income areas, where they try to actually do energy efficiency measures across the area in order to get a sort of community take-up. And Pairs You Save, which should be most of interest to everybody, including private landlords, where you get the money up front. It is sort of copying the German idea, where you get the money up front, you pay it back through your reduced energy bills over time, and the bill is attached to the house and not to you as the householder. So if you sell the house or if you move or if you're a tenant, you don't lose out um, on the money. Um, most interestingly, probably down here, is the feed-in tariff, which has just been announced and although some people have said oh it's too low and it's not enough I simply don't think that's true there's been a lot of coverage of how much money you can make by doing it you do have to have the money up front but apparently there are lots of offers from the dreaded energy companies to actually do it because energy companies have been given big incentives to actually do it so so there really is 
quite a lot going on and there's a lot of community interest as a result of which the government has announced this low carbon communities challenge and literally hundreds of communities over the country are bidding in to be low carbon communities. Um, that's just to give you an idea of one of the things that the government has made mandatory. LSE has a disgraceful um, energy efficiency rating chart in its main entrance um, showing that it's, yeah, I can't remember if it's E or F, but it's very poor actually, although it's supposed to be doing better than any other university in terms of the gains it's making. Um, but where you should be is at least at the bottom of B, which is your 81 SAP rating. Um, these could be made um, much, much more, more effective, but at least they're kind of a push in the right sort of direction. And this is what the government is setting its sights on. So at the moment, we've got a poor record. But for buildings, the famous building regulations, will push energy efficiency standards up by 40% by 2012, by 80% by 2016, by 90% by 2018, and by 100% by 2020. So the ambition is that at least the standard will be 100% up from where we are uh, by 2020. If we get anywhere near that, we'll be doing very well because we need to do, oh dear, there's an extra naught in there, I'm so sorry. Just try and accept that there should be one less naught there. So that should, the aim at the moment is that by 2016 we do 700,000 homes a year. At the moment we build 150,000 homes a year. So if you imagine, it's five times the amount we build to be retrofitted. Um, and by 2020 we should be doing a million homes a year. And the aim is, I think, by about... 2030 to have done the whole stock completely. Um, so will we get there before the lights go out? We do have a very, very serious problem. Forget climate change um, and forget um, you know, the Copenhagen disaster and just think about our energy supply. By 2016, on all calculations, we will no longer have enough flow of energy reliably into our system. Um, so we don't have a very long time scale and the government knows it can't build enough power plants uh, be before 2016. It can't get nuclear agreed and off the ground. It can't get agreement on extra coal plants. Um, we can import gas but we're heavily reliant on Russia and pretty difficult places to get it from. And there's a lot of speculation about um, oil and the supply of oil, but we do know that the supply of oil has become much more risk prone. And um, I was reading a lecture by the head of the biggest insurance company for the oil companies. And to give a very, very one-line summary of his talk, he said, this is uninsurable. The oil power plants are rusting away. All the major oil fields are in serious decline and there have been no big uh, oil discoveries except in completely inaccessible places like miles under the sea or whatever. So, so the, the picture is very, very bleak. So can we do it? Well, the government has realised that if it is going to do it, one way of doing it is to save energy. And it's actually extremely easy to get your energy use down by about 50% in any home. 
but we have no choice anyway. We're a small, crowded island. We've got less and less sharing in the shape of the way we form our households. So the biggest demand on all the new homes we say we need is single people and childless couples. We're using more and more energy. We're driving further. We own more cars. We occupy more space. We have more gadgets. And we have more and more stuff. We also go on more and more holidays, uh, mainly abroad, although there is a bit of a turnaround for that. So if you're all feeling really depressed, um, there are a few good things happening. So the transition movement, which originally was ignited by the fear of peak oil, although it is a strongly environmental movement, um, has now generated um, a response in at least 250 communities, and I'm pleased to see where's my hybrid transition people. I saw them walk in. They're somewhere high, Anthony. Um, there's been a huge boom in food growing um, in order to compensate for first of all, fear of food insecurity, but also a desire to do something. And in low-income communities, that is big. Um, it's, it's big everywhere, but it's particularly big. There's about 150 local authorities signed up to low-carbon pledges, climate change pledges, and so on, um, and actually leading the way, thinking of very clever ways of paying for some of this stuff. Um, social landlords are actually, interestingly, way out in front. So the SAP rating for social housing, and this is not government funding, when the government funded the Decent Homes Programme, which it has for all social housing, it explicitly excluded energy efficiency measures, although it did say thermal comfort. Um, it is interesting that social landlords are leading there. There are certain reasons I can see why that would be the case. I mean, two examples of places for people in Radian, and you can look for those social landlords and see what they're doing, but the National Housing Federation, which represents all housing associations too, so, so there's a lot um, there, precisely because they are public good organisations and because they house poor people um, and because they have group ownership, so they're able to invest um, in a slightly more um, economic way. The rate of recycling, appalling as it is, has actually doubled over the last few years. Um, biking is on the rise again after 50 years of decline, which is very sad, and in London it's more than doubled, which is great. Um, we've got a huge number of builders, at least 50,000 signed up to doing some of this retrofit um, work that we need and suppliers also keen to help. And interestingly, although people can't quite see the connection, a boom in camping. If there was a little time to show the connection between people thinking that camping is a good idea and people wanting to retrofit their houses, we could have a little special session on that. But, I mean, crudely, it means that people are more interested in doing more modest things. I know modern camping is very fancy compared with old-fashioned camping, but compared with staying in posh hotels, um, it's actually a pretty modest sort of activity. Um, so there's a few little illustrations of that. Um, a lot of you will have probably heard about the 1010 commitment and sign up, and um, it's all gone a bit quiet from them, which is a bit of a pity, but I think they're trying to get other countries to do it too. Um, the question is, in this year now, can you actually get a 10% reduction, given the sort of very different housing backgrounds that all of you are in? So I did a really approximate estimate of what it would be quite easy to do. So if you turn your radiator down a bit, you can save 10%. If you turn it down by 3 degrees, um, you can save 30%. So saving 10%, that's easy. You only need to go take your radiator down by one degree. 
to save 10%. Um, that's on your heating costs, but that's most of your cost, actually. You can seal drafty sash windows. You can line curtains on all windows. Um, you can have one-minute showers instead of two-minute showers. You can use one bowl for washing up instead of two. Um, and you can do all your washes on 30 degrees instead of 40, and that will save at least 10%. Um, if you leave all your lights off when you're not using them, and you leave nothing on standby, you can definitely save at least 5%. Um, we discovered that the we couldn't work out. My husband gave me for Christmas one of those energy monitors. I, well, I'll show you in a minute which is kind of, I call it your energy spy. So he's gone around the house snooping at who was doing what, because we've got people upstairs and people below, and then us in the middle. And he couldn't understand why 5% of our electricity was going in the night when everything was switched off. He even checked whether, you know, there were computers on standby, video, nothing on standby, and that showed up. And he suddenly remembered the people upstairs had got a microwave, and it's got a digital clock on it. So they leave the microwave on because it's got a digital clock. And that microwave on standby with a digital clock is 5%. So if you turn off digital clocks, you save quite a lot. You save 5%. Um, if you cook in the top of an oven, you can actually turn your oven down by 2 degrees and you save at least 1%. And if you have a hot water bottle in your bed, you can save about 5% on your bedroom heating. So you see, you can actually do quite a lot without spending any money at all. Um, there's, there's your energy spy. Have any of you been given one of them for Christmas? Then your husband goes around spying on you. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Anyway, um, and there's your digital clock, which is another kind of disaster. Um, so, will we actually hit this 80% target? Um, we do need serious building action. So I'm giving you very flimsy things that you can do for your 10-10 target, but you need to do a lot more. You, not you personally, but we as a country. So you need 200 to 250 mils in your loft. You need a lot in your loft. You need 100 mils on your walls. You need a lot on your walls. Um, you need to double or secondary glaze all windows. Um, and you need to use reflective coated glass as well because windows emit cold unless they have something to stop them doing it. Um, you need to draft proof and curtain all doors and windows, I've said that. Uh, porch, if you can add porches, that actually can save, I think it was 15% of your heat goes out through your door as you open and shut it. So even if you draft proof your door, you're still losing that vast amount every time you open the door. So having a curtain that goes around the door when you open it will actually save a huge amount. Um, having a condensing boiler that affects your heating and hot water saves you well, in our case, it saved us about a quarter of our energy when we shifted. Um, if you have solar water heaters, even in our dodgy climate, you get about a third of your water free. Um, I've mentioned low energy lighting and other appliances and heat exchanges. There are now some renewable energy options, the best of which is probably solar water heaters. PV, now that we've got the feed-in tariff, is becoming more attractive. Wind turbines are no good in urban areas. Um, and ground source heat pumps can work, um, but only in certain circumstances. The main thing to do, having done all of that, is to turn down, turn off, don't use, don't buy. Does that sound like a hair shirt? I'm afraid I cannot see any way around at least a little bit more hair shirt than we've had before. I just don't see that we can't. But apparently, according to Richard Layard, one of our really 
very well-respected professors here who wrote a book on happiness, uh, all this stuff doesn't make us happy. So you don't need to feel miserable about a hair shirt. It's actually okay. Um, we were happier at 17 degrees than we are at 20. Um, so there's our solar PV. There's our ground source heat pump. Apparently if you put enough of them in the ground, you cause frost. So you have to be a bit careful how you distribute them. And that's an air source heat pump, which, believe it or not, they use in Sweden a lot. And it's very, very effective. It's basically a reverse air conditioner. And it takes small amounts of heat out of cold air. I don't understand it at all. Um, but anyway. Um, and this is a porch. Now, this is a very classic problem of a listed building with a door that lets in blast-off air every time it's opened. And it opens into a dining room that's used by at least 50 people constantly. So it's the most ludicrous situation. And the porch cannot be fitted. This is not a porch, as you can see, it's just a bit of a cover, um, because there has to be full disabled access because it's on a slope. There are hundreds of reasons why you can't fit a porch on it. So we called our friend and very famous architect, Richard Rogers, to help us. He's the president of this place. What would you do with this very, very difficult porch we've been trying to fix? at the door. We've been trying to fix a porch on it for years. We can't figure out a way of doing it. So, he, And I've taken lots of photographs. He took a look at the photograph, sent one of his partners to have a look and see what we could do, and they said, put a cap on it. Just thought I'd let you know that posh architects validate everything I say. Um, so, are we really uh, running short? Is it true? Well, there's just a tiny bit of, this is the end, Nancy. This is the end. Um, are we really running short? Is what I'm saying true? Well, we know that space is at a premium and that everything you try to do with land is fought over. We know that our road congestion is the worst in Europe. We know that the number of cars and distance travelled is rising steeply, which relates to our housing. Uh, we know that the number of small households is rising fast, therefore our housing demand is rising fast and our housing shortages um, are pushed by the fact that people are living in more and more fragmented households. Um, households are rising far faster than our population. We have small population increase, large household growth. Uh, we're expecting oil production to decline within a generation. Um, and saving energy in homes is not rocket science, as I hope I've proved to you. So we're waiting for what? Uh, we did it with smoking. It did take us about 35 years to convince everybody. But when we actually finally introduced the bans, there was no protest. Um, so we can do this. All right, thank you very much, Anne. I'm slightly concerned at the quality of Christmas present you're getting from John. Um, and you might have to have a slight chat with him on appropriate gifts for the Christmas season. But. All right, um, if we could go back very quickly before we take questions to the second part of our interactive exercise. If you remember, you vote red is no and silver side is yes. The first question is, would you say LSE is a global leader in sustainability? Oh, <laughs> thank you. And the next is, uh, will you attend another LSE uh, sustainability and practice lecture? Excellent. Now that's what I like to see. Look at the silver. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, if we could start off taking questions. I know we've got some people with mics, and we'll probably take a couple of questions 
collect them together and then um, talk to Anne. Okay, here in the front, right there, and also down here. Thanks. Um, my name is Claire Ellis and I work for the Energy Saving Trust. So um, I kind of take issue with the f what you said about um, there's no reliable independent advice because hopefully that's what I should do. Um, and also one energy saving measure which you haven't mentioned at all which is very and has one of the fastest paybacks is insulating your boiler. No, not your boiler, your wa hot water cylinder. Um, but my question really is what do you suggest we do as a nation, as a country, to try and reach those people who are hard to reach, the old people sitting in their homes not wanting to take stuff out of their lofts? It's easy for us here who, you know, I would expect we all work and we're not at home. It's easy for us to make those measures, but do you suggest that old people turn their thermostat down by three degrees and turn their heating off 80% of the time and wait till they freeze to death. How can we reach those people and help them? Okay, and then the second question here. Hello, my name's Ray Butt. I've been interested in this topic since reading a NATO book on double glazing around about 1975. Do we have, my question is, do we have anything like the Freiburg set up in Germany, in the UK, where they have a huge pro project uh, for a whole area um, to try and reduce energy consumption. Thank you. Okay. And would you want to respond? Do you want me to answer? Yeah. Okay. Um, I hope what I said uh, didn't sound disrespectful on energy saving advice. I'm a victim of energy saving advice. Um, it's very, very difficult to give enough time to the individual householder who's trying to do these things. And I think that's one of the key problems, which applies also to our old lady. Um, and very few energy-saving advisors will be quite definite enough about what you should do rightly, because there's a lot of confusing and conflicting um, evidence on what the best thing to do is and what the quickest payback is. And we don't have a synchronized system that actually says, you know, this is the order in which you should do things and these are the materials that have been okayed by us. We don't have a very tight system for actually offering, uh, in my experience at least, that kind of advice with certainty. And the trouble is, because it's a lot of money, people need a lot of certainty. And the trouble is, it's not only the actual, say, the energy saving advice um, service, sorry, the energy saving trust, or whatever, you know, whoever it is giving you energy saving. It's your bank if you've got to get money, it's your builder, it's the surveyor, it's the local planner. You know, there's a whole barrage, it's your neighbors of people who you've got to cope with. And, and so I think basically, it's not clear enough, it's not driven enough, and it's not therefore um, certain enough for people to go ahead and do it. I just think there is general recognition of that problem, which isn't to belittle the huge efforts that are made by the Energy Saving Trust and by a lot of other organizations to help. Um, so I hope I can make that clear. My understanding is that we are now at a very, very high level of adoption of um, condensing boilers, um, but certainly insulating electric boilers where you've not got um, 
facility is hugely important. Um, on your really key question of how to reach the hard to reach, there are various kinds of hard to reach. So your old lady, of course I'm not proposing that old ladies should be left to freeze to death. How stupid would that be? The fact is old ladies wouldn't freeze to death at 17 degrees, but don't let's argue about that. What old ladies need, and they're just one category, is a lot more hand-holding support. Everything we do in this country where we offer hand-holding support to vulnerable people works. And everything we try and do without offering hand-holding support fails. So I could pour out example after example of an energy company that's hired a warm front company, that's hired a builder that comes to the old lady's house, knocks, she's deaf, doesn't get an answer, goes away, and then three months later tries again, and, you know, and so on and so forth comes and lays thermal insulation around her packaging in the roof because no, 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 it's not my job to move those boxes and, and so on and so forth. I mean, there are just hundreds and hundreds of examples. The same applies to lone parents. The same applies to all sorts of categories of the fuel poor. So we don't have a hand-holding approach and we've left it to people who have too rushed an attempt at doing it too cheaply. That is what I really think. If we really want to reach the hard to reach, we've got to take a lot more trouble and we've got to spend a lot more money doing it. Um, on the double glazing in the German model, no, that's another whole lecture. And I did almost have um, a slide showing the German model and showing what they've achieved in their Zukunfthaus program. I mean, one of the things I feel I've rightly, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean rightly. One of the things I feel justified in being proud of is actually inviting the German energy efficiency people over here a year last July. We then held a whole event here, which some of you may have attended, um, a year last December, where we had five German energy experts from their banking system, from their energy agency, DENA, from their government, and from delivery agencies in regions to actually try and get to the bottom of how the Germans could do it, and we couldn't. Um, and we got to the bottom of it. You know, they believe in order, they believe in regulation, they have an investment bank that was set up after the war because we destroyed so much and therefore paid back a lot of compensation afterwards, which created this amazing investment institution, which we simply don't have in this country. And they've actually used those systems to carry over into an investment they now feel they must make. They also have a much newer stock and a lot of it is in the form of flats and a lot of it is higher density, they firmly believe in external cladding. And they firmly thought correctly that they would get a lot of jobs out of going for renewable technologies. So they do massively subsidize both the retrofit, because they had a stock that needed retrofitting, and renewable energy. And they are the envy of the UK government. And interestingly, we then held another event. This, so if you look on our website, the ALSC housing case website, you can find all the presentations including the German presentations from this last December, because I think there's a huge learning. And a lot of what the government is proposing in its heating and energy saving strategy is learning from that. Okay, can we take another couple of questions um, down in the front and over here and then there as well? Um, thanks for your presentation. I, I always go to these presentations and I hear that um, it's such a good investment that you make your money back right away. And if that's the case, then why is a private company not doing this? And why do we need to bother about um, encouraging or hand-holding old ladies when someone could make a dime doing it themselves? 
Christopher Hill, I'm an architect. Um, the first point I'd like to just say is I, I can't tell you the difficulty um, I experience in my professional life with local authority planners that just do everything possible to resist the, um, the things that you propose. Um, but my, my main question is, I put it to the speaker that actually what we're talking about is really a symptom of something that's much larger. And the larger thing is a kind of an entire approach to how we produce things and how we make and live. And I particularly like to draw attention, I'm sure many people know it in this room, um, known as the cradle to cradle approach. And I'd just like your comments on that, please. And then one more question, and then Anne, you can answer them. Hi, yeah, I was struck mainly by your, the statistic that obviously 99% of housing is just the housing that we've got. Because I was struck by, I've been to a few events by, that are done by architects, and of course a lot of like the interest and attention is on the new builds that are often sort of zero carbon new builds, but of course 99% of our housing is the existing housing. That's what we need to focus on, surely. I just wondered as your sort of experience being on sort of, you know, government, sort of urban, whatever it is, sorry. Um, I just wondered, like, um, like architecture, how do you get that profession to be excited about refurbishment? Surely they have the knowledge. I mean, they have the knowledge to, to refurbish, um, like, houses. They have the, the knowledge to make houses completely zero carbon. So surely there'd be a profession that would be able to get excited and be able to... to you know, really help with the refurbishment and have the skills and everything. Okay. Want me to go? Um, okay, local authority planners. I mean, I don't know which part of the country you were talking about, but a lot of people talk about the problems of local authority planners. And I think planners, as far as new builder concerned, are told <coughs> how to make developments happen. As far as changing what's there already, they have a really high resistance to tolerating change. And I just think that's a built-in problem. And until we have much stronger guidance on having to do these things, then I don't know if that's going to change. So that's, I agree with you, very worrying. Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, you then went on to talk about, or maybe it was the next person. So I think planners are there to do what the government tells them, so the government has to tell them to do differently. At the moment, all the planning reform, as far as I understand it, is loosen up the planning system so that we can build three million new homes. And there's been very, very little modification of the planning system in favor of remodeling empty buildings or adapting existing buildings or using infill spaces or you know, the kind of things that would make existing urban communities, tackling our eyesores and so on, uh, better, or even protecting open space. Um, so, so I just don't think that the government has paid enough attention to existing, and it hasn't driven the planning system in that direction. But I do think it's raising a very, very important point. Um, how we can change the approach to how we make things um, in order to have a more cradle-to-grave approach. I mean, the way I would think about it, having listened to the Sustainable Development Commission on this subject a lot, we should look at the lifetime costs. So we should look at the resource that we need to put into something. We should look at the waste that comes out of something. And we should say, how quickly will we be able to replace that waste so we're back 
to where we started. And we do know that the rate at which we're using everything, land, forestry, water, energy, uh, steel, cement, bricks, everything is too fast, virtually everything. Um, so fossil fuels happen to be a very sort of self-igniting problem because we, by definition, they're finite. But there are lots and lots of other products that are finite too. Um, at the rate at which we're extracting them. So I absolutely couldn't agree more. Um, and I think in a way we've narrowed the debate down a bit too much to climate change and fossil fuels. We should be looking at it more broadly. There is a very fantastic book on this subject called Prosperity Without Growth. And I'm not here to promote my friend Tim Jackson, but I do think that his book, Prosperity Without Growth, does sum up very, very well this problem. And it shows on number after number that we just can't go on using resources the way we are. So, so I, I mean, we're just in total agreement. That's one reason why we should go hard on stuff. We just have to go hard on stuff. On your point about the 99% of all homes and architects, for most of what I'm describing, you don't need an architect. So obviously, architects aren't going to be quite as enthusiastic about stuff they can't do anything about or don't do anything about as stuff that they can. The best way to hook architects onto it is to get posh people to want to do this stuff. Because <laughs> posh people, really posh people, don't do this stuff without architects. Interesting, we've been inter interviewing small builders who do this stuff um, for a project we're doing for the Federation of Master Builders. And when they're told by architects to do what I'm saying, they do it. So builders are actually willing to do it and they actually find it quite interesting. But only if they're told by an architect or who is their client or their clients, meaning that the householder, will do householders tell you to do it? Hardly ever. Do architects sometimes? So when architects are given this kind of work, they switch on to it. So, but there isn't enough of this kind of work for architects. So basically, if we hook architects onto zero carbon new, and we new homes, and we had a government that said, what we're doing to new homes, driving for zero carbon, 0.6% of our stock each year. We've got to do, for our existing homes, 99.4% of our homes, then architects would pay attention, definitely. So, so I mean, again, I, I don't want to say it's all down to the government, but the framework is down to the government. That is why in the 19th century, when we first started living in chaotic cities, we invented government. It was businesses, it was private people, it was rich people who said, Let's create governments to actually make this stuff work, to actually make it hang together. We're now in a really difficult situation where governments have got to help us make it hang together. So I think that would sort it. And actually in the 1970s, when the slum clearance program was suspended, and the government did a big, very rapid shift over to refurbishment, architects ran straight behind it. So some of the big architects of today made their name on refurbishment. So I think if there was a big push on it, architects would follow. I don't think they'll lead. Are there any architects here? Are you leading on it? Well, there we go, look, see? Four of them, There's, we've got to be a bit more optimistic. <laughs> Shall we um, take some more questions? Um, okay, so one, two, and then the back there. Hi, I'm Matt and I'm an ecologist. Um, 
One of the issues of thinking with uh, if you're going to retrofit every single roof in the entire country with uh, insulation cladding is you're going to destroy probably about 50% of the bat roofs in the country. Now, I know about them too. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to ask you in terms of have you actually got any pr practical project mm. experience of those? I mean, obviously the benefits will vastly outweigh the actual the cost of it. But nevertheless, it's a legal issue that if you're considering on an actual individual project basis, it is an offence, obviously, to do that. So you'll need to take advice, probably from, perhaps contact your local back group, and they'll give you free advice on how to deal with that. Hi. Thank you very much. It's been really interesting. I'm a victim of this, <laughs> this as well. I'm trying to do exactly what you, you've uh, outlined here. So it's very interesting. And one thing that I uh, have struggled with over a couple of years now is the decision whether to do external or internal insulation. And uh, lost a lot of actual energy as well as psychological energy uh, deciding on it. Um, but what it occurs to me that if, you know, I, I live in a typical Victorian terraced house, um, external cladding, I've been told, isn't isn't sensible because it's too narrow so you wouldn't lose you wouldn't save enough energy but also the, it would it, it would obscure the nice the nice brick and the, you know that would be a shame I can't imagine many people would want to do that so now I'm looking at internal insulation as it happens I can manage to do that without you know disturbing my sense of the decor too much because I haven't decorated yet but other people won't want to do that because they'll have, a, you know, they'll have their wallpaper matching and their shelves up and whatever. So I'm just really intrigued what's going to happen to all these millions of Victorian homes around the country. But even if the government comes in and says, right, we'll internally insulate your house, whether anybody will let them do it. Uh, hello, I'm um, one of the people you referred to earlier in the transition Can movement. Can you speak up a bit? Is this on? Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm in the transition movement and therefore I spend some of my weekends trying to persuade people to uh, stop up the leaks in their houses. Uh, I'd like to go back to your drawing of a house that had um, the heat coming out of the roof and the walls. Uh, I may be being incredibly dense here, but your drawing suggested that 100% of the heat came out of the house. That's counterintuitive. I live in a house, I heat it, it's leaky, it's warmer than the outside. Um, are you talking in that diagram about the percentage of heat loss? In which case, what is the average heat loss, for example, of a, of a detached dwelling or of a semi-detached dwelling or of a terraced house? Because that's the kind of stuff I have to persuade people with, those figures, not you know, you, use a hun you lose 100% of your heat loss out of the house. That's, that's a nonsensical thing to say to them. Okay, and, and if you wouldn't mind just taking one more, yeah, because yeah. this chap has had it. I missed him before. Hi, Sorry about hi. that. Hi. How are you? All the better for seeing you. Thank you. Um, house builders um, are encouraged um, to build one bedroom. Um, don't wave it around. We okay, because it's more profitable. I think it's a design issue here. We need to sort of encourage some um, communal design living and to tax existence. If we um, is there anything that we can do to encourage people to shack up, young <laughs> and old, living together as com um, in, in community, in communes and stuff? 
Now there's a challenge. Okay, bat roosts, nightmare. Luckily, most people don't have bat, uh, what are they called, nests? Roosts in their roofs. The one I showed you, the porch after all, does have a bat roost in the roof. You can, if you're very lucky, because bats hang from the roofs. They tend to hang from the roofs. So we got in our bat experts and our crime advisors and our everybody's. And if you get in your, there's a, a window of opportunity for putting roof insulation in. You don't have to mind a lot of bat poo. I mean, so that's a big problem. But as long as you get around the bat poo problem and you insulate it in the time before the bats will start to do something, um, you're, you can do it. I don't know whether that would apply to all roofs, but certainly most bat roofs are in old buildings which have got, you know, typical, you know, big rafter type roofs and the bats hang down. And so you can, in most cases, if you take good advice, do it. We had the Wildlife Trust, the Bat <coughs> Protection League, you know, we really, we, this is a national centre, we had to get good advice. Come and visit, if you're a bat person, you, we'd love you to come and visit. We've got bloody thousands of them. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I do know about it. And bats mm. only in the countryside. So actually, luckily, although it might affect what did you say? Half of something. Don't <laughs> 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 let's go into a big bat discussion. You and I can have a bat exchange. Most houses, luckily, don't have bats in the roof because most of our houses. You must know that we're eighty-five percent urban, and most urban areas don't have bat roofs. So you know, we we don't have as many bat roofs as you might hope us to have. We definitely don't. So we should preserve the ones we've got. I agree, but anyway. At the end of the day, we are going to have to make some hard choices. In my experience, you can usually get round protecting seals, protecting birds, <coughs> protecting bats, protecting great crested newts and all the other things we've got to protect. Um, and if you have a very conservationist approach to nature, you'll actually probably be quite good at retrofits as well because you really believe that you should conserve and take care and a lot of retrofitting is about that. So I, th I think we can cope. But anyway, do come to Trafford Hall. Or do, I'll, I'll give you the details and you can contact the person who dealt with it and get proper chapter and verse. And, and we honestly did it really properly. Um, the transition movement and stopping up drafts. I've got the diagram here. I don't think we'll skip back through it. It was a detached house. And a detached house over whatever period of time will actually go down to the outside temperature. So that's just how it is. Um, if it's a semi-detached house with an occupied house next door and you put no heating into your semi-detached house, you will get a small amount of heat transfer from your house next door. If it's a terraced house, you'll get heat transfer from both sides. If it's a flat and you've got people on either side and above and below you, you'll get heat on all four sides. So it does depend on the structure of the building, what you do. The fact is, if you get heat from all four sides, you'll have a generally low energy bill. But if you've got drafty windows and a drafty door, you'll still lose a lot of heat. So drafts, you know, is very good to stop anyway. Um, if that's not true for a detached house, I do have evidence to show that it actually is. Um, so, but we could maybe talk about that afterwards, unless you particularly want to say something now. Um, on the question of communal living, I mean, there's definitely no way that you can force people to do that. 
but there are a lot of lonely, isolated households. And there are a lot of people living in single-person flats who want to live on their own because they want independence, but they don't want to be lonely. And I don't think we've proved ourselves very clever in this country about that. That would be particularly true of very old and fragile people who need more help, who need to be close to medical services, who want to be close to social contact and whose families moved away and who live in far too big a house, but it's actually too difficult to move into a smaller house. But it's also true of young people who want to leave home but who don't necessarily want to be lonely, and young people do tend to be very social. I'm not sure people need incentives to shack up together. I think that was your word. They seem to kind of do that anyway. Um, but, but in Denmark, there are lots of examples of shared facilities within single-person accommodation. So shared laundry. There are in America, too, actually, shared laundries, shared cooking, a shared shop. You know, there are all sorts of things that you can build in um, to living arrangements that make it more economical and less energy-intensive for you to live on your own and also more sociable. And I would personally think that was actually very important. And we should encourage more experiments like that. And again, I think that's where planners could sometimes help. Um, okay. um, time for another yeah. another three questions. So here and at the very back, and also down here, please. So go up to this guy here. Hi, sorry, I was going to bring it back to the question of the internal versus external insulation. Oh, yeah, um, I forgot that. I'm so sorry. Yeah, um, okay. I was wondering what evidence you had that actually insulating the inside of a wall on a, hot, on a solid built property is actually in any way advantageous at all. Because we know that being on the outside is much, much better because of the thermal mass of the wall itself. So I'm a surveyor, I should probably explain. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't believe there's been any any testing that proves that there is that putting insulation on the inside of the wall actually makes any difference because of the loss of the thermal mass. Okay, and then the guy in the very back there. Uh, yeah, my name is Jamie Abbott. I'm a um, home energy advisor. Uh, so uh, another question on the solid wall issue. I was wondering how you propose that that would be funded um, or financed or how people could be encouraged financially to invest in their own houses, um, bearing in mind that it's, it's hard to see the payback in financial terms. Uh, I'm an architect and I'm currently updating a student textbook I did years ago. And of course, the whole business of sustainability and energy conservation um, is, is a, a big new a textbook. On energy efficiency or on architecture? It's a general architect student's okay. uh, textbook. And sustainability is a thing that I now have to address. Now, my point is that you know, I'm sitting, as I do this, in my architect's offices, which are um, brick-built, high Victorian sash windows, drafty windows, leaking like a sieve. And I don't think I'm a especially profligate person. I mean, I drive a Skoda, for God's sake. And uh, nevertheless, it's taken me years to come around to the idea of doing something about this. And what has finally made the difference to me is just simply looking at the bills. You know, our electricity costs, our fuel bills are such that now I've simply got to address the problem. 
and we have to take down acres for shelves and we have to put in double glazing. It's going to cost a fortune. I'll have to go to the bank and borrow money and all that. But I think that it is the economic incentive that will ultimately make the difference and will work for us. And sure, we have to have all the frameworks in place that you've been talking about tonight and the good advice and so forth. But ultimately, it's people looking at their bills that will help us. Okay. Um, I really don't want to go into a very technical argument um, on external versus internal. I can just relate to you what I've learned from people who are experts, which would include the German Energy Programme, uh, the Building Research Establishment, and the many councils that have actually used um, cladding over a long period of time. I've actually worked on a number of estates which have done cladding. Um, and I would also relay discussions I've had with people who passionately believe in thermal mass as a way of saving energy and people who believe in light frame buildings that are highly insulated as a way of saving energy. Okay, so just really, really simply, I know that external cladding in this country costs a lot of money. It's very expensive. It's about twice as much as internal cladding. Logically, if you put the tea cosy on the outside, it's going to be better. Obviously, you can't put tea cosy on the inside of the teapot. Um, but if you were trying to keep something else warm, you could put it on the inside. But it does seem to me logical that you're going to do better with external cladding. Um, and in Germany, external cladding is half the price that it is here, including, in one particular example that I went to see in Berlin, using external cladding imported from the UK, which I found extremely bizarre. Um, so, um, you know, so logically, external cladding is going to be both simpler and better. There are situations where it's impossible um, and where it's not allowed listed buildings and... Uh, straight onto the street, narrow pavement, um, two up, two down type terraces and, and other places, conservation areas and so on. Usually it's only the front where it's not allowed. So in a lot of the projects that have been extremely successful, um, the Nottingham House is one example, uh, Parity Projects is another example, the um, Lewisham model is another, the Camden model is another. You don't put external cladding on the front, but you put it on the sides and the back. And, that, and the, the old home superhomes is another example. So, so in most cases, you can put it on the sides and the backs. On my understanding, internal insulation has been proved to be effective. BRE has validated a lot of the materials, and they've been tried and used over a substantial period of time in many different countries, including Scandinavian countries, Germany, Austria, the United States and this country. So I'm taking it as read that it works and actually doing it on our house at the moment. So I can't actually directly report. But I mean, some of the people who've done it, John Doggart of Old Time Superhomes has made a 76% energy saving. Uh, Russell Smith of Parity Projects has made an 80% energy saving. The Zukunft House Programme has made an 80% energy saving. So I, I think you know there is a big body of evidence that it works. Um, how to finance the payback, and how to finance the upfront cost and get the payback. There is at the moment a government experiment in what's called pay as you save, which I flagged up. 
and it is very worth you looking at evidence and information from pay as you save. It's running at the moment, so there isn't any strong evidence of it um, of its outcome. But I was talking to one of the energy people at um, DEC about it today, and it's going well, and there's a big take-up. And the idea is that you get the upfront money, either through your energy company, or through a distributor, or through your local authority, or through a straight um, energy grant, so that you don't have to personally fork out, say, the £5,000 or the £10,000 it's going to cost to do your wall insulation. And then over time, as your energy bill drops in month one from 100 to, say, 70, the £30 that you gain, you get 5% benefit, and the energy company takes back the 25 And in that way, the loan is repaid over a period of time. And that bill is attached to your energy rating for the house. So as you sell your house, so the person buying it buys a charge on the energy bill, which is compensated for by lower energy. Whether that's going to work or not, I don't know, but there's every prospect that it will work. Um, in practice, what happens in Germany is that you get the upfront help, you then pay back, but as you pay back, so the amount you're charged massively drops too. So you end up paying back more quickly and paying less and less, which is a very big incentive. So, I mean, definitely we could do with bigger incentives, but there is a, a mechanism now for doing it. Um, on your problem about years of coming round to the problem, I think that is the huge barrier, frankly. We do have 16 million, I think it's 17 million, I don't know why I said 16, I think it's 17 million owner-occupied individual houses. And everybody has this, you know, an Englishman's home is his castle attitude. And George Monbiot, he is like, you know, climate camp man, thinks that taking down his bookshelves is too much bloody bother and so his house should be demolished. He literally put that in writing in his extreme book about how to save the planet, you know. He, so for him to say that shows you just how bad things are. Um, which is one reason why I think we should stop being so stupid about bricks. If you go to Kensington and you go to Mayfair and you go to Regent's Park, you'll notice that the houses were clad 200 years ago. They were occupied by rich people. They were designed by top architects and therefore they were clad. They were covered in clay and painted cream or white. They were clad. They weren't clad with insulation material. They were just clad in posh material, so they looked posh. Poor people's areas were built with brick, and suddenly you can't cover brick. I just think it's pathetic. I really do. Especially since if you didn't do it, you demolished them like there was no problem. So, but, but I'm not going to win that argument, so I'm willing to accept that for the frontage, which is the narrow bit of the house, you have to internally clad. You don't normally have masses of bookshelves, luckily, on your front wall. You normally have a window and then a door out of the room, so it's not that much to do. Your big problem is your side wall, and in terraced housing, luckily, that's a part of all. So the actual cladding problem isn't quite as big as we think it is. Mentally, the problem of doing any of this stuff is absolutely huge. But we did it with smoking, which nobody thought we would, and we had the tobacco companies against us for a very long time. Do any of you work for a tobacco company? Um, you know, so if architects, for example, move round to it, which, are, you know, you're suggesting and other people have suggested they are, which I think they are, you know, we'll get a bit of a groundswell of people. If the builders, the architects, the surveyors, the government,
all hate high energy bills, we might stand a chance. That is my hope. Thank you very much. Um, before I thank Anne, I just want to tell you two quick bits of information. The next Sustainability in Practice lecture is on the 25th of February. It's going to be in the Sheikh Zayed's um, Theatre in the new academic building. And that is with Tim um, Jackson speaking on prosperity without growth. There is also um, a sustainability event at the LSE Literary Festival on the 13th of February in the Wolfson Theatre in the new academic building. So you can come along to that. And finally, I'd just like to thank Anne for a very lovely talk this evening, a very in interesting talk, and also thank all of you for coming. Thanks very much.